This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium D&D. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. In today's episode, Ian and I discuss advice commonly given to new DMs, the value of starting your DM journey with the rules as written, and pitfalls that can emerge by failing to cultivate precision in your rulings. And hey, if you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we stream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. So John, how you doing, by the way? I'm doing, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing just fine. Just fine. Indeed. I had inspiration strike me today regarding my next session for Corsara that I'm very excited about. Um, I feel a lot more mindful too about how I plan my sessions right now. Like what kind of theme do I want to touch on and why? Like what is, what is the, why is it central to the experience of my world that I want to talk about this kind of thing? I was just gonna say, you know, it's actually been a little while since we've, there's been a lot of time since we've recorded The Last Lens. So we haven't really talked about how Corsara is going. Um, we, I think we talked about maybe the session zero that we did for it. Um, but, you know, it's been relatively recently that we've actually played through the first two sessions. So before we jump into like the like quote unquote official topic, I think it'd be cool to just talk about that a little bit, like where you're at with Corsara, what you like about it, what you're excited to improve. The things that I'm really enjoying about Corsara right now are how people are resonating with the gameplay format that I've chosen to use, which of course is uh, typing for like the canon story and, you know, talking for just like commentary or questions or anything like that. Uh, it's really been going well, even for people who I wasn't too sure would like this kind of thing. Um, they have responded uh, with very encouraging feedback, uh, especially after I wrote the short story, which kind of like summarized and, and wrapped up how the session went and the events therein. Uh, I, that really spoke to them. So that was, that was very uh, awesome to see. Because uh, that's exactly the kind of experience I was hoping to get. Things I'm still hoping to improve on. Um, I think I, I think I did pretty good in terms of uh, trying to uh, convey like a red thread, a major theme of the session, uh, and be really direct about that. Uh, but I think that one thing I want to improve upon is uh, creating more potential for like character dynamics with the party. Of course, this was like the first session. So it's really mostly, you know, the party members talking to each other and bouncing off each other and socializing. Um, and it's not so much about the NPCs or anything, but I do think that I could have uh, fleshed out the NPCs that I introduced a little bit more, not so much making them more complicated or adding more dialogue, but 
increasing the quality of the presentation that I that I gave for them. This is particularly noticeable in the fact that I chose to format the first two sessions as like a two-parter where one party would do something that would impact the events of the of the next session with a different party. Uh, I thought that was going to be really interesting and it was. Uh, the second one fell a little bit flatter though because uh, I guess, I don't know, uh, past self Ian did not uh, really <laughs> decide to write uh, or prep enough in advance of the session, even though present self Ian totally thought they did. So <laughs> that was that was kind of something I felt was uh, not really a failing on my part, my part, just a miscalculation. Uh, there was there was a little bit more I could have done there. But besides that, uh, I think it went really well and, and everybody seemed to really enjoy it, especially when I was like, I don't think I prepped enough for this. And they're like, nah, you're fine. You know, that kind of thing. Very encouraging feedback. Yeah. I mean, as a player in uh, the second session, I thought it was awesome. I do think it highlights the strength of the play the session and then write the short story because in that format, if you feel, and there's been plenty of times in running Gearis who I've also gotten similar, like, whoa, it's amazing feedback where I've DM'd a game and I'm like, ah, that made me not, that, that didn't hit the emotional chord I was going for, or this part seemed to fall a little flat. But when you recompose it as the short story, then those parts that you're a little dissatisfied with in the moment, you've got the time and space to really flesh them out. And if there were any like inconsistencies, you're like, wow, that character acted really not like that character. You don't have to like retcon what their actions or their choices were, but you can dive into a little bit more specifically, maybe even with that player. This seemed out of character. Why did they do this thing that seemed out of character? And then you can come up with reasons that maybe neither of you were prepared for in the moment, but that's what really creates the depth of character, the development. Um, and I really, I, I don't know, I appreciated the space to just, let the party members talk to each other. I always found it very frustrating whenever I would play a game that was either a one-shot format or this kind of like we play once a month and always feeling rushed to get to like the main plot where we really wouldn't have time to just, you know, take an hour to just banter with each other and figure out who each other is. Um, also, it was fun to finally play with players that were very responsive. Um, I've played a few different campaigns with this deeper storytelling layer. And I, I don't know if it was just the kinds of characters the players were choosing or the player personalities, probably a mix of both. But there were times where I would try to interact and really get to know them on like a personal level. And they would be really closed off as characters, but it was like everybody. So it was very frustrating for me as a player who was looking for that engagement, looking for that excitement, those inter-party dynamics, and to just be kind of dismissed. And it wasn't like anyone's fault and I'm not blaming them or anything. It's just that it wasn't what I was looking for. And this definitely like hit the nail on the head for me of really demonstrating upfront what each of these different characters' quirks and strengths were. and Already, I was talking with the other players about one of the things I'm looking forward to out of this game is watching how the players decide to grow their characters, where we got a really good sense of where everybody is starting from. And not only might secrets get revealed, but also 
how they'll grow from where they are now. I'm really excited to see where they're going to be like 10, 20 sessions from now. Yeah, that's actually the main thing that I've always been really excited about in terms of playing with other players or coming up with a character, you know, uh, in these past like couple of years of playing the game is, you know, having a character in mind, but knowing that they're not like stagnant, that there's like a, you know, you can approach it with a growth mindset where they are going to start in a certain place and the scenarios that they encounter will help them uh, change and help them, uh, you know, see the world in a different light. That's always been something that I find very uh, fulfilling uh, as a player of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and I'm really glad that I could give you that experience as well, John. It's it's really, you know, heartwarming to hear that because uh, I know how playing in Gearus makes me feel and how excited I am all the time to play the next session whenever it's coming up. Uh, I, you know, I try not to linger on it because it's like, then you get into the mindset of like, what am I playing next? What am I playing next? Right. But uh, I, you know, when I know I'm going to play, I, I try to, uh, you know, give, uh, you know, give into it like uh, 100%, regardless of what happens too, because the, as long as it serves the drama, I am the kind of player who is willing to pretty much go along with anything because I know that there's like a greater uh, point to all this. And, and I know based on how you've talked about it, that this is something that you've really been missing in your own chances to play the game, that it's something that you've always really wanted to be able to do, just like you said. And being able to provide that environment and that opportunity for you uh, really makes me happy because, uh, well, you're my good friend of a uh, good many years now. And, uh, you know, I, I like to know that I, I make my friends happy. <laughs> well, and just one thing I want to stick on, because I think it'll help segue into like our core topic tonight. You mentioned growth mindset, which is a really interesting term. And one that I have found is generally misunderstood. Not that you're misunderstanding it, but like just for people listening, I'd really like to clarify it, which is it was uh, it was a term coined by Carol Dweck, and she uh, she wrote it in her book Mindset, and it was opposed to a fixed mindset, right? So, and really, the only difference in between the two is a belief. A fixed mindset is the belief that your current capabilities cannot be changed. A growth mindset is with enough effort and training, your capabilities can change, and also. Uh, deteriorate. So if you don't practice something for a little bit, your skill will atrophy and you can get it back through effort. But really, I think one of the key things with growth mindset is oftentimes I'll hear it in the context of like positive psychology of like, I know you don't feel really good with this now, but if you believe in yourself, you'll get it. And what that, what I find is a lot of times in how it's used it doesn't acknowledge the pain <laughs> that is the cost of improvement. There's a reason they're called growing pains, not growing joys. And the other thing is just the idea that, again, if you don't practice, your abilities are not fixed. They will deteriorate. So it's one of the reasons why I really treasure the chance of being a player in the format that you're choosing to do. One of the things I've said to DMs all of the time, and we'll talk about this a little later, 
is be a player in somebody else's game. I, I know that for one reason or another, a lot of individuals love being in the realm of the DM. Being a player makes them uncomfortable. Um, and you have to understand what it's like to be a player to craft an experience that's going to be optimal for players to receive. That's something I truly believe that the best DMs really are like trying to play at least as much as they DM, if nothing else, then to remind themselves of what it's like to be a player. So when they're making rules judgments, they're doing so with empathy. And that doesn't always mean going on the player side, but it does mean that Oftentimes I find the DMs that slip into the more competitive nature where it's like, oh, my monster can do this. And oh man, I can't believe they defeated my monster too quickly. It's because they've forgotten what it's like to be a player. And they've forgotten that their role is to adjudicate an experience that's going to be a net positive. And again, that doesn't even mean their players always win or their character always lives. Um, a lot of times the most meaningful moments in a campaign or when a character passes away for one reason or another but with growth mindset which is a very powerful thing and I think it's actually I didn't even think of it you know when I presented to you our topic about cultivating precision but it really is the core of it there is going to be a lot of mistakes and there's going to be a lot of points of pain and you're constantly evaluating is this pain worth the growth that I'm looking for and usually the cost is always at least a little more painful than we imagine that it's going to be. And oftentimes the benefits are also greater than we imagine them to be. So it's a really just interesting thing to start with that if nothing else, just acknowledging that nobody's capabilities are static, <laughs> I think is a very powerful shift. Yeah, I definitely think it's important to define our terms whenever we bring up stuff like that, especially that come from uh, our background of martial arts and uh, personal development. I think that that brings us beautifully into our, our core topic today, which is uh, cultivating precision in how you rule as a DM. So I find that cultivating precision with the rules as written is going to be the, the key thing allows you to be playful when it comes to homebrew and custom rules. That's like the core of today's topic. And I know that that can be a very visceral thing to say for some people, uh, especially uh, individuals that have fallen in love with running a custom campaign with custom rules. It may seem like kind of an affront to that, but uh, there is some context here. So please bear with me. Um, and where I got this idea from just to discuss today is over the past month or so, I've seen countless Facebook and Reddit posts that all pose the same question. They read something along the lines of, I'm a brand new DM. Are there any tips going into my first session that anybody has? And undoubtedly, there's usually a large amount of similar replies that are some variation of these bullet points. One is usually just start playing. Everyone starts somewhere and you'll learn as you go. Something I totally agree with. I think a lot of times people psych themselves out seeing how many rules there are in the game and they end up not starting, which 
it's the hardest thing to do is to take your first few steps. But to bring it back to that growth mindset thing, the first session is probably going to be painful and it's not going to be your best because it's the first time you've done it, even if you've played the game for a while. The next one usually says relax and have fun. Remember that this is a game that's supposed to be enjoyed by you and your friends. Again, totally agree with that. I think that a lot of times we take ourselves too seriously or we take the game too seriously or when something goes wrong, we take it too personally and just reminding yourself of that goal that the outcome is to have fun. The only problem I have with those first two is while they're well-meaning, they're not very actionable. Like they're, they're just good concepts to keep in mind, but the tip of just have fun, just relax. It's like, if you imagine someone's really nervous for say their first game or giving a first speech and tell them just relax, of course. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? Just have mm. fun. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody ever calmed down because somebody told them to calm down. Exactly. So what I what I find is that if you give someone something concrete to do, the relaxation will happen next because their mind is now focused on actually doing something. So the next two are, are kind of interesting, too. So like one of them says uh, it's OK to make mistakes. Absolutely. I think a lot of times we beat ourselves up for making mistakes. My one thing is don't make that an excuse to not take accountability for your mistakes. <laughs> um, but again, mistakes are the the price of pain that you pay in order to grow. Uh, another one I thought was interesting is don't over prep. This is kind of like what you were saying, Ian, about, you know, it's better to have a loose outline rather than a strict narrative. Although I do think that it's okay to prep as long as you're willing to shed it like a snakeskin, where you have an idea of how things are going to go, but also you acknowledge the fact that things aren't going to go the way you think they're going to go. I have had, I can probably count, count the number of times on one hand where I've prepped a session and then the players make the exact choices I thought they would make. And it goes exactly the way I thought it was going to go. So uh, I, I usually pat myself on the back for those. But th those moments are few and far between. But like I said, uh, the main thing, even the don't over prep, it's telling you either what not to do or how to feel as opposed to giving a concrete, actionable thing for DMs to do. And this is the last one that I'd actually like to contend, which is there's usually a whole lot of comments that say like, you don't need to memorize all the rules. You don't really need to know all the rules. Just start playing, just have fun, relax. It's okay to make mistakes. And the reason I'd like to contend it is because I think that cultivating precision in your rulings using the rules as written is the most actionable thing you can do. And also the most helpful thing to do whether you actually want to rule with the rules as written or you want to get into using house or homebrew rules or if you're more focused on the narrative. It's very hard to grow when your mind is fixated on not doing things. So it's kind of like, you know, someone who wants to lose weight. They're thinking about all the things they don't want to eat right? Don't eat carbs, don't eat pasta, don't eat processed sugar, can't get ice cream anymore, rather than focusing on the things that they should eat. Recently, I had this like huge thing where like a very wise mentor of mine offered me some nutritional advice. And 
it just really changed the way that I looked at how I feel myself. And I have been feeling greater and like my body has been responding so well to it. It, it was just amazing how a relatively small change made such an impact um, just on like how I'm deciding to live my life just overall. And I, I think that especially if you're going in saying, I don't need, I'm, I'm, relinquishing the responsibility. I don't need to know all the rules. A lot of times it creates an unhelpful precedent to the point that it actually bogs down the game because now it's harder for both the DM and the players to understand the particulars of a situation and then know how to proceed and move forward with said situation. Uh, someone in chat asked, what was the advice? And the advice just had to do with just paying attention to my protein intake. Um, and also some ways I hadn't considered about getting healthy proteins. Um, one of them is Dave's killer bagels. <laughs> Get like 13 grams of the, the everything bagels have like 13 grams of protein in them. Um, and also, I think I mentioned this on Borrowing Brilliance, but there's a company called BioSteel that has like a protein shake. And the whey protein isolate each scoop has like 28 grams of protein. So all of a sudden, because I was meeting my protein needs, I also, as a result of focusing on protein, didn't really, I, I haven't been eating a lot of fats or carbs. So all of a sudden there's this room where if I do like eat a little bag of Fritos or something from the instructor closet, it actually doesn't like hit any of my macros really bad it's probably a lot more sodium than i should have but because my focus is on these like kind of clean proteins it, it freed up everything else in my life like i can move better i can think better most of the time um <laughs> you know i don't have to worry about how i'm going to fuel myself and i just feel a lot better too so yeah yeah um no, it's, it's actually really nice when that kind of thing happens. You just something like just clicks and you feel that much better for it. Usually it's the result of a lot of hard work and experimentation, though. And when it comes to dungeon mastering, uh, you can kind of get the same effect here when you understand the rules and you've played with the rules for a long time in an accurate way. Uh, you will be able to kind of bend them, break them, mold them to your will, uh, especially and, and know when not to use them. Like kind of like when knowing not to call for a die roll on the D20. Um, I was going to say that this kind of reminds me of mastery in the martial arts in a sense, because you have to start with this foundation if you want to become anyone who's extremely skillful in the style that you train in. I don't, I'm not a master of martial arts myself. I'm not a master of Shaolin Kempo Karate, which is the type of uh, martial art we train in. Uh, so I don't really have much I can speak to on that, but based on my current understanding of what it is, uh, it, it's a process, right? Mastery is a process. It's not a state of being. So being a dungeon master is a process of understanding the rules learning the rules carefully and learning where to supplement them or ignore them uh, depending on the situation. And I, I find this to be very analogous in that sense and, and probably no coincidence at all that uh, dungeon master and, you know, karate or martial arts master, 
you know, they use the same word for a reason, right? If we, especially if we apply the definition of master from the martial arts into Dungeons and Dragons, it actually uh, has a very fitting uh, resonance, at least for me. Yeah. And I, I love just something I really want to hold on to for a second is what you said about mastery is a process, not a state of being. And in the martial arts world, especially in general, there tends to be a lot of ego flying around, especially somebody over-identifying with a title that's been bestowed upon them. So mastery, acknowledging there's usually a point where you've committed enough to the process of mastery that you get to wear a special gi or get to wear a special belt or something like that. And again, to go back to growth mindset, skill set isn't static. <laughs> it's it fluctuates. There are times you're like really active. You're you're hitting, you're growing, you're at a higher point. If you don't train or you don't take care of yourself or you eat crap, your skills deteriorate. Sometimes they deteriorate in circumstances not of our choosing, such as an injury or a chronic illness that suddenly happens to you. And mastery goes beyond the physical skill to the mental skill. And I think that's the key thing is what I think I want to point to is the way to cultivate mastery in the dungeon master sense to bring it to D&D is by becoming a master of the rules, you are now free to be playful with the rules. I think if you try to skip the basics step of understanding the rules as they're written, then I think that it leads to a lot of unhelpful situations we can get into in a bit. You are talking about how it's kind of like a fluctuation, you know, growth mindset, you know, means that it's not fixed. If you reach mastery, it doesn't mean you're always a master, which is kind of interesting because you can also apply that and, and see the, the red threads that connect it to uh, Zen and enlightenment. Right. I'm pretty, I don't know who said this. Uh, I, it was some great Buddhist Zen person, but uh, they were taking an interview with somebody uh, for some reason or another. And the interviewer asked, are you, are you enlightened? Like I, I heard you reached enlightenment. Are you enlightened? You know, just to confirm. And the master said, not at this time. No. Uh, <laughs> and I thought that was an interesting response because they were saying basically that enlightenment is something you experience, uh, and you don't, ex you're not in a constant state of enlightenment because, well, that wouldn't really be the point, you know, <laughs> which is, I mean, that might not be a very satisfying answer for our listeners here. Um, but you know, I, I, a lot of people who study Zen, that would be kind of like that, that would definitely uh, strike true for what they understand about the process. Also, I am informed by one of our viewers that the person who said that quote, uh, that Zen quote was the Dalai Lama actually. So that's kind of neat. Yeah. And to give a Western example, uh, the book that I'm currently reading right now is Lynchpin by Seth Godin. And one of the things that he mentions a few times in like the early parts of the book, because I've read the early parts of the book so far, <laughs> is just the idea that all of us are geniuses. We just get convinced that we're not. And 
none of us are geniuses all the time, just like you said with the Dalai Lama and enlightenment. Um, he actually, oh gosh, I can't remember the example he uses. It's like an investor person. Just the idea that if you look at what that person does, like most of his week, there is nothing we couldn't do, right? All of us can do the exact same things. We probably could do them a little bit better, but there are like five minutes throughout the day that that person is a genius because they're making, they're deciding what companies are worth investing in and a genius in a way nobody else can replicate. So, and that's enlightenment, you know, it's a Western example, but it speaks to that same kind of like inner genius, inner insight, inner enlightenment that it, it's not something that happens all of the time. And also you can learn to recognize it and tap into it more often with training. Um, one of my favorite quotes is rhythm and balance predict success. Frequency makes the master. So there, a lot of times, you know, you'll hear it with any kind of art where I'm waiting for inspiration to strike or that there is this idea that you almost have to like surrender to the muses for them to speak to you. And really, no, it's lots of intentioned, frequent work that's put in. There's pain and it doesn't feel like genius at the time, but what you're doing is investing in the fact that genius is going to strike more and more often and you're going to be able to do more and more with it when it does. It's, I'm sure we've all had those moments, you know, it's why our other podcast was called DM Shower Thoughts. You're taking a shower, you suddenly flash on something and you have this genius idea and then you get out of the shower and you forget half of it. <laughs> so it's making sure that not only when genius strikes, uh, you're able to recognize it, but then you're able to do something with it. Hello, this is John here with a quick editory note. The quote-unquote investor guy that I was thinking of from Seth Godin's book Lynchpin was Richard Branson, who, according to Wikipedia, is a British billionaire entrepreneur and business magnate who in the 1970s founded the Virgin Group. All right, now that I've cleared my conscience, back to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Eureka, right? Like, uh, the it's like what I what I said to you earlier, actually, I think I sent you a text because I was working on um, or I was just kind of mulling over what I wanted to do for the next session of Corsara. And I sent you a, a you know, bit of a, a meme uh, where I was like, and lo, the muses saw it, that it was a good idea to give this guy some inspiration for his work uh, because I had been thinking and thinking. I've actually been thinking about what I'm going to do next for the past week. Um, but, you know, basically that inspiration isn't something that that hits you unexpectedly. It's something that you're cultivating, which uh, I, you know, we're talking about cultivating precision for our main topic today. And, uh, you know, I was trying to come up with a better word than cultivating for inspiration, but I couldn't. So let me know if you come up with something better. Uh, I want to I come up with like a, a quote or a statement like inspiration uh, doesn't strike, it is cultivated or something like that. Yeah. Well, and I've really lately fallen in love with the term cultivate in the same way I've fallen in love with the term culture. Because when I, I thought of the word develop, but then it felt too much like when you develop something, 
it develops into an end point. Whereas cultivation is like something, first of all, that when I hear the word, it tends to be something slow, but it's also something that can overfill. And I think that with cultivating precision in how you rule things in, or precision in your foundation, it gets to the point where when you cultivate enough of it and it starts to kind of spill over, your players get excited about it too. So I, I'm thinking about the first ever real game I invested a lot in was called D&D 101 because I was trying to quote unquote teach a class about D&D and its mechanics. And I just remember the players that were part of that campaign are largely our Gearist players now. They're the ones that got so excited about being precise about the rules that eventually we could move beyond the rules and now be more playful with them. In a similar way, to bring it back to a martial arts example, a lot of times when you see a master martial artist move, and remember, mastery is not a static identity. Sometimes you can watch an orange belt and they move in a masterful way, if only for like three seconds. But it's so, they've cultivated so much that in that moment when it spills over, it becomes apparent to everyone. Did you know that there are other tabletop games than Dungeons and Dragons? Well, my name is Gavin, and I'm the host of Playing Out of Character, an actual play podcast that showcases different indie game systems. We play all these indie tabletops using goofs and spooks to tell our stories. Arc 1 features an improvisational take on Urban Shadows. Next up is Shadows of the Demon Lord. If that piques your interest, look for Playing Out of Character, a Darkmoor podcast show on your favorite podcatcher. Now that we've got kind of like the vision part out of the way about why we feel passionate that this is an important topic, what we're actually talking about, like kind of the nuts and bolts of it, which is that when you're a new DM or even a DM that wants to make their game better, first start with the rules as written as frustrating as they can be, because the more you use them, the more you play with them the more you start to understand maybe why the rules were written a specific way and you start looking up things like sage advice, you start to really understand them inside and out. In the same way too, a lot of times like I find, to, to bring it back to a martial arts example, this was baked in from the topic from the beginning. To me, you can usually tell how quote unquote mature a martial artist is <laughs> because the ones that haven't really been around a long time will like immediately criticize a technique or a movement by saying something like, well, in the real world, I would just do this. What happens if I spinning back kick them in the face? What if I have a bazooka? What, this is one I actually got. Uh, what if the club is enchanted? Like, what then? And I'm like, well, then you get hit by the club. I, I don't know how to answer that. So, um, <laughs> and a lot of times that same student hasn't spent much of the time actually training their nervous system to make that like theoretical thing actually happen. So when they say something like, I, I would just do this, <laughs> it's like, but would your body actually? And that's the thing is a lot of times, like I said before, a lot of people will psych themselves out of DMing before even beginning because they get so overwhelmed by the amount of rules they think they have to know going in. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying while you're DMing, do your best. And it's okay to make mistakes, but do your best 
to use the rules as written a lot to the point that they're no longer necessary. And when you feel like your game's getting kind of weird, move back to the rules as written. And like I said, just like how an quote unquote immature martial artist, which I, I'm not trying to be judgmental with that term. It's more just, you know, recognizing where they may be in their journey. Just like they don't understand what it's like to have someone punch and kick back at them, like from a nervous system perspective. The number one fear of people is public speaking. And that's really all DMing is. So your nervous system is having a fear response in a similar enough way for the sake of this argument that learning how to refine your foundation, refine your rules, understanding as a dungeon master is really what's going to give you the confidence to be able to keep things moving and encourage some helpful habits in your players about checking in, making sure everyone's on the same page, asking questions about their understanding of it. I do have two quotes here uh, that I collected. One, uh, I hope I say his name right. Uh, Sonky Ahrens from How to Take Smart Notes. Uh, if you've been keeping up with Borrowing Brilliance, it's the Zettelkasten book that Stephanie was reading that I also read. And I really had to like, I had to push myself through it at the end there, man. Um, but one of the things he said towards the end is being intimately familiar with something enables us to be playful with it, to modify it, to spot new and different ideas without running the risk of merely repeating old ideas, believing they're new. And man, have I sat with a lot of dungeon masters who have thought they've come up with the most ingenious custom system. And it's like, oh, it's just this. But they didn't realize it because they hadn't cultivated the foundation first. Um, and then another one, again, I stole this from Seth Godin uh, for Lynchpin, uh, which is expertise gives you enough insight to reinvent what everyone assumes is the truth. And again, the more you understand the rules as written, the more your homebrew makes sense. There are a lot of times, and I won't mention anyone by name, but I've seen some content creators pride themselves on their homebrew hacks or whatever. And as you look at it, if you understand the rules as written, the system as it is now, you immediately see the cracks in the design because they've overpowered one option and made another option obsolete or not worth taking. They've their fix is so good for one thing, it makes three other things not worth playing. And the game tends not to be more fun when you have less viable options. So when you said doing your uh, doing your best to use the rules as written when you're first starting out, it, it, how important that was, um, it kind of made me think about uh, looking at it a different way where um, it's not just like, cause I think the problem, one of the problems is a lot of people look at this kind of thing as something they have to do, right? You know, we, all, we have often talked about, you know, things playing D and D should be a get to not a have to kind of thing. And it should be the same thing about being a dungeon master. You get to be the dungeon master. You don't have to be the dungeon master. You get to follow the rules. You get to learn the rules in a deeper sense you don't have to follow the rules. Like it's not some arbitrary uh, criteria that you have to fill in order to become a skillful dungeon master. There's a reason that the rules were written in a certain way after 40 plus years of play testing from the ground up. Basically, uh, 
what stood out to me here was that we're talking about using the rules in the face of uncertainty. And new DMs are uncertain. New DMs are nervous about playing for the first time and being the person that everybody looks to to make a call. Being the leader isn't an easy position and not everybody is naturally cut out for it. Not everybody's got a charisma score of 18 at level one. So <laughs> the idea here is that you should see these rules as something you use in the face of uncertainty when playing the game. You should know them so that when things come up, you can decide whether to bend or break them, like I said earlier. And that <clears throat> experience is, this experience is necessary in order to see the whole picture as you go through this journey. We are walking the same paths that people have walked before us, not because we're unoriginal or uninspired or anything like that, but because this is the way that things kind of get filtered down to, right? It's uh, like, uh, you know, imagine a funnel, right? And you, this funnel, I, this is going to be a weird one, John, get ready. Uh, this, fun, this funnel is the funnel of dungeon mastering, right? And it's not just the funnel of dungeon mastering, it's the funnel of great dungeon mastering, right? And you got you you can just pour as many potential dungeon masters into that funnel as you like, but they're all gonna come out of the same tube in the end, learning many of the same lessons and saying, wow, like looking back on it, saying, wow, so that's what that meant. Wow, that's the reason people told me about this or why I've seen this kind of thing. And this is what the experience I was really having, why it was significant. Um, the rules are there for you to face uncertainty in the game with. But if you don't know what they are, you're just going to continue to feel uncertain. And experiencing the rules as written is critical in order to develop uh, a homebrew setting with your own rules and your custom rules that actually work and feel good when they work. And we see this with 1D&D. People are really either excited <laughs> about the changes that are being made, or they think that everything is ruined, that the game is ruined for them. You know, there's no, it's not playable. This is how everything burns to the ground. And I, I only started playing a few years ago, and I can't believe they're doing this. I agree. To stick to that one D&D point for a second, you know, this is the first episode we've recorded since originally recording that speculation podcast we did with Stephanie. And now we've seen a lot more of the community's response to it. We've seen a lot of analysis and speculation, all that stuff. And that was one of the reasons there is, there is a few different places, this idea of coming back to the foundation and understanding the core rules of the game, why that topic compelled me at this moment. And not only do I frequently see, like I said, the social media posts about I'm a new dungeon master. Do you have any tips for me? Also, looking at the response to 1D&D, it's been very apparent basically who's done their homework and who hasn't. Um, a lot of the negative responses are unjustified. And one of the best comments I saw um, was 
you can't write rules for people that don't read them. <laughs> and so a lot of times there is like, this is an outrage. How could they do this? And it's like, oh, well, it's actually been like that for a while. <laughs> like it's that's been the precedent for the past like three years. Where have you been? Um, and I think like another reason that's really good for just understanding the rules as written um, actually has to do with narrative based play which is what a lot of the new 1D&D rules are based on to begin with. I have played with many DMs, both new and quote-unquote experienced, where they say, I want a narrative-focused game. And we won't necessarily play really strict with the rules or anything. And I found that a lot of the time when they try to ignore the rules rather than leverage them, what ends up happening is a lot of confusion and we spend more time talking about the rules than we do the narrative. So I, I've seen with it with a new DM before. I don't I'm not really going to worry about the rules too much. And then the first combat comes up. It's like, are we going to roll initiative? No, we're just going to we're just going to kind of and then things get messy. Things get confused. Things get unfair. Things don't get understood. Right. It's like, well, why can your creature hide? but my creature can't hide. And it's it's all, and really, if the DM had instead taken the time to understand the rules as written, listen to what the player's concerns were with the way that they were ruling it, it would have been a much more fun exchange. It would have been a much more fun outcome. So I, I just feel like a lot of times when you try to ignore the rules to just relax, have fun, and enjoy the story, a lot of times what ends up happening is things get confused. So now we have to go back to the rules because we ignored developing them beforehand. And it's in those moments that you get to experience what Gary Gygax was experiencing with all of his friends way back when they started doing any of anything to do with this. Uh, there were no rules that they could reliably take a look at. They had to come up with them because if you, I mean, the worst, I, I remember when I was a kid, the worst games of pretend that I played with my friends were the ones where there were no rules to look at because you're just like, well, I can just decide to be invincible and and you will never be able to touch me. Ha ha ha. And it's like, but why? That takes the fun out of it. Don't you see? You know, we need the rules to have something to pivot off of, to have some boundary like we're feeling around in the dark that's what it is you know when you when you decide that there's no rules you're basically feeling around in the dark looking for a wall that doesn't exist and so you're going to get lost and you're never going to find your way out and there's no like a, 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 there's no sounds to guide you there's no rock to feel for there's no light to see it's just darkness right and that sounds pretty grim uh coming from me uh, but uh, it's true. It's kind of funny how that works out because we, John, you, me, and Adam, uh, if he ever hears this, uh, shout out to him. Uh, he provided us with this setting basically where we could write a narrative for our characters without having to even have our character sheets, dice, or rules available. It was just, what do we know about this game that we play and how can we make it exciting without needing to strictly say, ah, make a grapple check, ah, make an acrobatics roll, dexterity save, you know, things like that. Just the narrative and our experience with the rules that allows us to work within those boundaries to create something magical. 
that that was really exciting. Neither of us, none of us were in the same room together. This was all done over a Facebook post uh, or Facebook uh, chat, I should say. Uh, and it was some of the most exciting stuff I'd ever done uh, when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, so exciting that while I was at Disney, I was on my phone most of the time during waiting in lines and stuff. <laughs> Uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, uh, but, uh, but I, I don't regret it. It was quite the experience and I still had fun at Disney. So, uh, <laughs> the, this is, this is the potential. I don't even think this is the culmination of what knowing the rules can be, but this is one of the potential outcomes of understanding the rules intimately can lead to. And that's, I mean, you know, if you can just hear the passion in my voice, that's what you should be excited about when you're a dungeon master, learning, learning the rules so you can play with them too, uh, with a complete, you know, with a full deck, so to speak. <laughs> so two things on that. First, I think that was the first time we really did like an in-between because <laughs> really that's what those end up being are, are short, short adventures or episodes or interactions in between sessions that each of the characters are doing during downtime. And sometimes those in-betweens become the most meaningful character development slash story things that the players can experience. Second, again, the rules create structure, which now create clear choices to be made. Um, and, you know, Stephanie from Borrowing Brilliance, uh, during her first lens, Lens 17, Becoming a Student of Yourself, mentioned that she was drawn to Dungeons and Dragons because even though this was largely imaginative, there was a lot of space for creativity, there was a rules foundation that could be relied on. A very, for the most part, clear set of rules <laughs> that happen. So when you start combat, you roll initiative. You have an action, bonus action, movement. There are specific cases where those things get muddled, but there are rules to learn. Um, and that means that there's like a comfort in the ability to go back to that foundation. So I just want to end this by just saying, I know, I know the rules as written aren't perfect. And I am by no means saying that if you're not playing with the rules as written, you're doing a bad job as a DM, um, that it is the quote unquote best method to play. The specific frame of this is if you're a new DM and you want a tip, cultivate that precision through the rules as written. An obvious drawback to just doing the rules as written. Many of the rules are silly or illogical. They lead to ridiculous or predictable outcomes. Um, there are definitely reasons why it's not the best thing to do. Great example of a rule I like to harp on is two-weapon fighting in no way feels like two-weapon fighting. It just, it's such a clunky mechanic that almost punishes the player for trying to take it. But what I am saying is that failing to develop a knowledge of the rules as they are is going to hinder your ability to create effective custom rules that fit your table well. Uh, this is a step that's easily missed by new GMs and often impact their games in difficult to recognize ways. Like I said, with narrative play, like how many times have we been trying to do something theater of the mind or try to do something um, where it's really story-based and then we're like, is it 30 feet away or 60 feet away? Because the game rules dictate specific 
measurable <laughs> distances that either allow a player to select an option or keep a player from using that option. Yeah, I, I think it's a matter of, you know, recognizing that the rules are there to help you, right? Uh, they shouldn't feel like a hindrance, kind of like what I, I think that's really what I was trying to say earlier, uh, earlier when I was saying that you get to DM, you don't have to DM, you get to learn the rules, you don't have to learn the rules. Like, I think that's what I really mean is that it shouldn't feel like a hindrance when you're learning the rules like that. Yeah, you know, and there, there are always going to be rules that don't make any sense. <laughs> uh you know like like invisibility rules it doesn't make any sense because invisibility is kind of like treated as almost like a condition where you are there's two bullet points in the invisibility spell one is that you have advantage and disadvantage on attack or advantage on attack rolls against other people and disadvantage on attack rolls made against you and you can't be seen and those are separate and that's dumb because when you cast something like fairy fire, you know, invisibility, sure, you know where they are, but you still can't hit them very well. Hello, this is John again with another editorial note. So Ian and I discussed it and looked up the rules afterward. And the example he was thinking of was see invisibility, not fairy fire. So the way the rules are written for invisibility as a condition are that there are two bullet points like Ian said, the first reading that an invisible creature is impossible to see without the aid of magic or a special sense. For the purpose of hiding, the creature is heavily obscured and the creature's location can be detected by any noise it makes or any tracks it leaves. But the next bullet point is where things get weird it says attack rolls against the creature have disadvantage and the creature's attack rolls have advantage. Now, the idea that most people would have, including Ian and I, up until Treant Monk released this video like a month or two ago, is that the reason that the invisible creature is getting advantage on their attack rolls and disadvantage with attack rolls against them is because they are unseen. They're an unseen attacker. Jeremy Crawford in an interview said, that is not the case. It doesn't matter if the creature can be seen. Just because they have the invisibility condition, this second bullet point applies whether you can see them with that special sense or not. Fairy Fire specifically says that a creature affected by it cannot benefit from invisibility. So that's like a specific call out of how Fairy Fire cancels out the invisibility condition. But then you get to a spell like Sea Invisibility, which is a second level spell, not a first level like Fairy Fire. And it says for the duration, you can see invisible creatures and objects as if they were visible. But because Sea Invisibility does not specifically call out that creatures cannot benefit from being invisible as long as you can see them or something like that, basically invisible creatures still get the second bullet point, which Again, it doesn't really make a lot of logical sense, but it's a great example of how the rules as written can sometimes just be funky and illogical. So with that out of the way, let's get back to the episode. But yeah, you know, there are going to be times when the rules don't make any sense. But in order to 
try to come up with something that does make sense, you have to know how the rules work and, and what works in the rules, right? What does make sense in the rules and why? And that will lead you to a thoughtful conclusion that will give you something satisfying rather than feeling like a hodgepodge kind of kind of slap together, you know, fix. And I've run into this with um, with a magic jar, which is a spell uh, that uh, you can uh, see also elements of in some creature design that I've used in the past called the Whispering Warlock. I forget what publication it's from um but basically they have the magic jar spell feature but it's not a spell it's magic it's just a feature so i thought that was too op the the op part being that it switches people's souls and it doesn't give them a save afterwards uh and i i thought that was too op and that my player characters were gonna die so i changed it and i said now you get a save you get a save at the start of your turn that was a mistake <laughs> That was a mistake. I did not realize that putting the save at the start of the turn rather than at the end of the turn would have such a strong impact because immediately they saved. And, and basically it just wasted, wasted a round of combat. It was just like, well, we're saved now. I'm going to do my turn. Uh, so uh, other alternatively, um, having them save when they take damage or something like that, you know? Un if I had understood understood how the rules play that out for devastating effects like that, it would have felt a lot more compelling uh, instead of falling flat and making the whole boss fight seem like a pushover. So yeah, you know, take my testimony. It's true. You need to know what the rules do. Yeah, and when you go to implement homebrew, because I do feel there's a point where even Treant Monk, big rules as written content creator, still has a few house rules that he uses. This is a bigger topic we'll get into later, but I, I don't think it's harmful to introduce it on the tail end of this rules as written thing. First, understanding the rules as written will help you better understand the second, third, and fourth order consequences of implementing a house rule. A lot of times there will be, you'll be pleasantly surprised, most of the time not, a lot of times when I see do this quick homebrew fix or this homebrew hack, the reason it's broken is because of the effect it has on a lot of rules around it, right? It's never healthy for your game to make something so powerful. Everything else isn't. Another thing is when you make homebrew rules, make sure that they're clear, well understood and accessible to your players. The most frustrating games I've been in are the ones where the DM decides there's a house rule but like there's not a universal document that players have access to that allows them to question and understand it. And a lot of times, unfortunately, the DM can be too tempted to now make changes to that homebrew rule and pretend it was like that the whole time, which only adds to further confusion. It's, oh, I've always ruled it like this. Oh, I'm going to rule it like this this time. And it just makes it much easier for them to like play favorites, do all the bad DM stuff. I think the core of Dungeons & Dragons is puzzle and encounter design. I'll draw from favorite movies, video games, books, anything to create a one-of-a-kind play experience. When you start with a solid framework, all you need is to grab your best friends and hilarity ensues naturally. I'm Sully, Dungeon Master and host of the podcast How Friends Roll, a 5th edition actual play podcast of micro-campaigns featuring a rotating cast of characters. Come join our table. How Friends Roll is available wherever you get your podcasts.
All right, it's time for Character Build Breakdown, our segment where listeners can submit their character builds for a quick analysis and recommendations. To submit your own build, head over to the Dragonmind channel in one of our two Discord servers, the Darkmoor Podcast Community Discord, or the Tavern by Incendium D&D. Both of those in the description below. All right, this build breakdown is going to be a little more involved than usual. Today's build was actually submitted by Ian, who you also just listened to in the past episode. The character he wanted me to break down is Rowan, a character he played in a campaign called Grey Owls, which was run by our DM Shower Thoughts co-host, Adamus of Adamus Drake Productions, whose website we'll link in the description below. If you've ever visited our YouTube channel, Incendium D&D, Rowan is the tiefling that you see in the channel's icon. To give some context about Rowan's play history, the Grey Owls campaign was envisioned as a bleak, character-driven narrative where even at high levels, the players never felt more powerful than their environment. While I'd been part of this campaign since the first session, Ian had joined much later, when everyone's characters were 15th level. Wanting to dive into the story of a warlock, Ian built Rowan as a full 15th level warlock. He kept that build, taking two more levels of Warlock up to level 17, after which he finished off her build with three levels of Peace Domain Cleric. Part of deciding to pick Cleric was for team synergy, and I'm sure you can find your fair share of opinions on the sheer support power Peace Domain provides. However, Ian told me that while he had fun playing Rowan, he had some reservations about her build, mostly revolving around her action economy. So, he asked for some recommendations on how to build her while maintaining his cinematic vision. When I asked Ian about how he imagined Rowan fighting, he said that he imagined her as a scythe user with competency both in melee and in magic. Rowan's patron is the Raven Queen, one of the more iconic deities in D&D's canon, and one specifically mentioned in the lore of Hexblades in Xanathar's Guide to Everything. At high levels, Ian would use Eldridge Blast at range and Eldridge Smite when in close. Despite acknowledging Eldridge Blast's tactical advantages, I know that Ian imagined Rowan being okay getting up close and personal. He also loved using Tasha's otherworldly guise as a trump card, taking on the aspects of the Raven Queen in a dramatic transformation. However, there are a few mechanical weaknesses in this approach. First, at most, Warlocks only get access to four spell slots, meaning that Rowan will only have a very limited number of uses for Eldridge Smite if she takes 17 levels of Warlock. Second, Tasha's otherworldly guys offer some problematic overlaps with a Hexblade's core style. First, while the spell offers damage resistances, a fly speed of 40, and an AC boost, it also specifies that the user can make a second attack and use a spellcasting ability in place of strength or dexterity for weapon attacks. Well, with Hexblade, we're already using Charisma instead of strength and dexterity for our weapon attacks. Also, if we take the Thirsting Blade invocation from Warlock, we don't gain an additional attack from Otherworldly Guys. If instead we don't take Thirsting Blade to make the most of Otherworldly Guys, well, we won't have extra attacks for every other encounter we're not using it. In addition, Otherworldly Guys takes our 6th level spell slot, or Mystic Arcanum if we go Warlock, as well as take up our concentration. 
So how do we maintain all of these features while also streamlining Rowan's resource pools and action economy? Keep in mind that this is going to require a little bit of reflavoring, and my solution is just one of many possible solutions. There are many more we can use if we wanted to. So to start, first, although Rowan is a tiefling, my first recommendation is to actually use the Asimar stats from Monsters of the Multiverse. While fire is a strong resistance, I feel like necrotic and radiant fit better for the damage types that the Raven Queen would be associated with. Of course, the real reason we're doing this is for Celestial Revelation, which I'd take as the Radiant Soul. This is in place of otherworldly guys. While we miss out on the AC bonus, it frees up our concentration slot and also offers a small damage bonus. Most importantly, I think, it allows us to use this feature of Rowan's character from 3rd level onward, rather than having to wait until at least 11th level. Of course, I think there's also a case to be made for taking Necrotic Shroud, which frightens enemies of your choice in exchange for the fly speed. Next, we'll make sure to start Rowan off as a 1st level Warlock. If our DM allows it, we'll want to take advantage of her medium armor and martial weapon proficiencies right away. Ian mentioned that when he played Rowan, he simply used the stats of a glaive for a scythe. I have no issue with that. However, while the Hex Warrior feature grants us a proficiency in martial weapons, its charisma swapping ability doesn't apply to two-handed weapons, so we'll have to wait on our glaive slash scythe use for a few levels. Our initial stat distribution, assuming we're using a standard array or point buy, will depend on the multi-class route we want to go down. I've given a few different builds some consideration, including a paladin or bard, but with keeping thoughtful gameplay and Rowan's most memorable moments in mind, I eventually decided on building Warlock 5, Sorcerer 15. While I liked the idea of Paladin's Aura of Protection, I thought both the level investment and need for a 13 or 15 strength score was a bit much for what Ian was doing with his character. Rather, we'll still have a significant smite ability in Eldritch Smite, and we won't have to worry about stacking extra attacks or taking additional levels of Warlock to swap out Thirsting Blade or anything like that. So my array for Rowan ended up as 10 Strength, 14 Dexterity, 15 Constitution, 10 Intelligence, 10 Wisdom, and 16 Charisma. For Cantrips, we'll take Eldritch Blast and a utility spell like Mage Hand or Minor Illusion. And remember, we also have Light from just being an Asimar. Not that we need it because we also have Dark Vision. For other spells, we'll take Hex and Shield, which becomes available through Hexblade's expanded spell list. For Armor, again, if our DM is being cool, we'll be starting with a Chainmail or Scalemail, giving us a 15 or 16 AC, depending on if we're okay with that stealth disadvantage. And because we can't use a Glaive quite yet, we'll have to settle for a one-handed weapon, like a Longsword or Rapier for now. At second level, we'll have access to two Invocations. Here, we'll take Agonizing Blast and Grasp of Hadar. With Agonizing Blast, Eldritch Blast is going to be our go-to option for this level. Eventually, we can use Grasp of Hadar to pull enemies into the range of our Scythe, but for now, we can use it to pull targets toward our tankier allies. Then at third level, our concept comes online. With Pact of the Blade, we can finally create our own Scythe Glaive as an action. With Hex Warrior, we're using Charisma for our Conjured Glaive, meaning we're dealing 1d10 plus Charisma modifier damage no matter the range. 
Plus, unlike other martial characters at this level, our glaive is dealing consistent magical damage. And even if your fellow martial characters have a magic item this low level, they won't be as self-reliant as Rowan. We can use our bonus action to use our Hexblade's Curse or to activate our Celestial Revelation, or we can use it to cast Misty Step, which I recommend taking at this level. We'll talk about 4th level in just a second. There's a whole different conversation we're going to have about ASIs. But at 5th level, we'll take Thirsting Blade and replace Grasp of Hadar with Eldridge Smite. Don't worry, Grasp of Hadar won't be gone forever. At this level, we have a pretty interesting character. We have a competent melee character with a few less hit points than a fighter, but they have access to two third level spells, meaning they can help with counter spells and shields. Then we begin our sorcerer progression with shadow sorcerer. I also considered a few different subclasses for this one, but seeing Rowan's gameplay, I really think shadow sorcerer is going to offer some unique mechanical advantages, on top of the fact that it's just thematic. Using the darkness as a weapon is definitely something I see the Raven Queen offering her patrons. The extended dark vision will come in handy, and in two more levels, you'll be able to do the classic cast darkness but see through it trick if you want. Plus, you'll have some added survivability with Strength of the Grave. The key thing with adding Sorcerer to the mix is that we get a more robust spell slot progression that's missing from our Warlock progression. We'll have more ammo for our Eldridge Smites and some first level spell slots to use for shield. Some of the more useful lower level Warlock spells, like Shield and Misty Step, aren't going to be wasted using higher level spell slots, and it'll free up our Sorcerer spells known to take more robust options there. Of course, we'll also have access to some meta magic like Quicken Spell, Subtle Spell, and Twin Spell, which will give us a very versatile action economy. Now to come back to ASIs, I do think that there are some options that we can consider. First, the obvious thing we could do is max out our charisma. That's always a good go-to strategy if you're not sure what to do with your ASIs. Depending on how we like our charisma bonus relative to our effectiveness in combat, something else we could do is take the Eldritch Adept feat from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, which will give us back Grasp of Hadar. For some players, that's going to be more interesting than maxing out their main ability score as quickly as they can. Another bland but effective option is taking Resilient Constitution. This will bring Rowan's Constitution up to a 16 and offers a proficiency in Constitution saves. And especially for a potential melee character, those extra hit points add up. Another really good option to consider is Warcaster, which not only grants us advantage to Concentration saves, but it allows us an additional option for opportunity attacks. Instead of using your reaction to make a weapon attack, you can use it to cast a spell instead. Definitely a helpful thing when you have a lot of options in between Sorcerer and Warlock. The last thing I want to mention here is Rowan's true capstone, uh, Shadow Walk at Sorcerer 14, a free bonus action teleport we can use between two points of dim light or darkness. Between this, Misty Step, and a possible fly speed, and her literal range of ranges, I can see Rowan being a devastating mobile damage dealer with many different aces up her sleeve in the form of high-level sorcerer magic. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragonmind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, 
which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Sugar, spice, and everything dice. These were the ingredients selected to create the most badass ladies in all of Arcandrum, each treated to a vision of the possible destruction that could befall the world if they did not stop it. Thus, the dream team was born. Crit Like a Girl is a cinematic podcast featuring the adventures of four strong women and an adorable little owl. Join us every other Monday, and come see how we, Crit Like a Girl, 